Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to showcase one of my all-time favorite bands. It is John Douglas, guitarist for the Trash Can Sinatras. So these guys have been around for like 30 years. They started out in the alternative scene in the UK in the late 80s out of Glasgow. They put out their debut album in 1990, Cake. It's one of my top five favorite albums of all time. And in 30 years, they've only put out six albums, but all of them are just about the most perfect things you will ever hear in your life. In fact, last year, they kept it going. They put out an album called Wild Pendulum last year that was among the best things I had ever heard. I love these guys. I had been wanting to get them on the show for a long time, and I had approached them earlier this year, finally, and I got turned down. And when I got turned down, whoever it was that responded on their Facebook page mentioned that, you know, they don't really like to get into kind of the mundane, as they put it, business side of, of the music industry, of paying bills, and they refer to it as boring, things like that. Well, that's, you know, that's something that we think is kind of interesting. So I was really bummed to get turned down, but thankfully our fortunes changed eventually. You'll find out why here in a minute. But because of that, I didn't want, I, I purposely didn't dwell too much on how essentially a cult band maintains, you know, a 30 year career when they take like four or five years in between albums. Suffice it to say, I just hope if you're not familiar with the Trash Can Sinatras, you will hear some music in this thing. We try to jam a lot of it in there that you recognize as being something that will make your life better because they will. It will. They are one of the greatest bands of all time. Now, I have to tell you, so this was my first pass at trying the new gear of, you know, trying out a new microphone and Skype and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I found out afterwards that most of my side of the conversation got ruined. Um, in fact, if you'll notice I, I remain very quiet in this one and, uh, compared to normally. And that's because most of my side of the conversation didn't get recorded. Uh, Yan has done his best to save a lot of my side. We had to do a lot of cutting, a lot of re-recording. So if it sounds you know, different than the normal sort of give and take conversation. This is why I was really afraid that we had lost it for good. Uh, thankfully, Yan is going to be able to save it. And we did the best we could to put something out to you. I will say John's a very mellow guy. So take that as you will. But anyway, I love the Trash Can Sinatras. I hope you get turned on to some new music. If you love them, I hope you hear a few things in here you didn't know before. John called me from his home in Glasgow. John, thanks a lot for doing this. So a few months ago, I had asked, I'd reached out to you guys on Facebook and asked you to come on the show and whoever is on the Facebook page turned me down. I think it was probably you. Um, I was so disappointed because you're one of my favorite bands of all time. You've put out some of my absolute favorite music of all time. I just love you. So a few months later, I saw your post that you were about to embark on an acoustic tour in the States this fall. And for better or worse, I took it as an opportunity to sort of bust your chops a little bit because to me what makes the trash can Sinatra so special is that it, you guys depict this the feeling of joy or joyousness 
better than any band I can think of. That is what makes, to me, especially the early Trashcan Sinatra's music so special, is that it sounds like joy, and it makes you happy, and it makes your life better, you know? And that, But that goes back more to sort of the jangle pop sound of those first two albums, Cake and, and I've Seen Everything. And it seems like over the years, you guys have sort of mellowed out a little bit. And so instead of joy... The sound that, to me, most defines Trash Can Sinatra's today is lovely, which is also very good, you know? You guys put out beautiful music. To me, personally, I miss some of the joy. It feels like some of that joyful sound is not there. And so when I heard that there was an acoustic tour, I was afraid this meant that we weren't going to hear any joyfulness. Anyway, having said all that, I am curious what goes into the decisions to go on an acoustic tour versus a plugged-in tour? Well, they're not really choices, to be honest. Plans seem to come around due to circumstances, and the circumstances for this tour were um, basically we wanted to kind of refresh our motivation and see, see where we're at. So we decided to do some shows in the most relaxed, easiest form possible for a few reasons. Uh, one to look at our motivation and just see how see where we're at in life, reconnect with each other as people, and two to kind of use our abilities. I'm a bit of a working musician. I play with other people, and I'm, I'm kind of I use my abilities quite a lot, and I'm always writing. And Frank is uh, over in America. He doesn't get much chance to get out of the house and sing, so he was over here during the summer and mentioned that he was kind of missing it. So I came up with this plan and. Rather than go into a big organisational thing, which 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 the bigger band takes, we just thought, how can we how can we be relaxed and see where we're at? And an acoustic thing is, I've done it before, and it's very enjoyable. You know, you you travel light, you don't have to get to venues till maybe later in the day. Your your nights are over earlier because you don't have to strip everything down and uh, the the journeys are quicker are, are easier because there's less stuff to take so the the, mo- the motivation was generally to be as relaxed as we can and, and and enjoy our abilities so that led to acoustic now the sound has gotten softer though wouldn't you agree what what accounts for that we have like the rest of the population aged <laughs> i suppose we've always i mean there's ballads on the first record
ballads in all the records, if that's what you want to call them, slower, more more moody things. There's not so much rocking going on, I suppose. I just think we evolved over the years, and um, we had phases of, of, of loud guitars and, and, and big drums, and even sometimes when the songs weren't particularly suited to that, but that's the way we wanted to be on stage. <clears throat> Record-wise, you know, you just, we just, it's all very natural. The songs are, are the songs, and 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 everything you hear is everything we've come up with. Um, yeah, we're getting we're older, I suppose. You, you tend to be a bit of a, of a think of things a bit deeper, maybe difficult to 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 really talk about the pace of things. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, weightlifting. Weightlifting was a kind of recent record of ours, relatively recent in the in the. I mean, it's our second one. Was that three records ago? And there was a song called Welcome Back, which is a bit of a rowdy rocker. I don't know. One good thing, though, is that Wild Pendulum, you guys' album from last year, which happened to be my third favorite album of last year, which is an odd coincidence because Cake is my third favorite album of all time. A lot of threes here. Wild Pendulum finally kind of gets back into a really upbeat sound. In fact, there's even some, like, dancing going on, or it feels like it anyway, you know, with a song like All Night. So you did decide, I guess, you know, where are you in a new mood, a different mood? What goes into sort of changing up the sound? Yeah, and I think the latest record has got quite a lot of upbeat things on it. So I don't really know whether there's a, you know, there's a there's a direct gradient that started out fast and then went slow. I think it's I think it's got its ups and downs, and it's as varied as as our years have been. Days days are. I think we just. Some days were full of energy and there'll be energetic songs. Other days they'll be more cerebral and there might be a more thoughtful approach. Now, any regular listener of the podcast knows that the, the alternative British music of the 80s is probably my biggest soft spot. I, that is my favorite. I love everything that happened in that period. And I'm curious, who were some of the bands that you came up with? I'm just imagining you guys in clubs back in Scotland sharing bills with bands like you know, the Mighty Lemon Drops and maybe Echo and the Bunnymen even or the Chameleons or something like that. Who were you coming up with back in the day? The bands that we were coming up I don't really know, to be honest. Scotland, the, the bands that were going, we didn't, never felt as, as much of an affinity with, with other bands. It's some of the fuel for for how you want to, for, for making music is because 
you don't hear the music around that you that you think should be around. You know, no no one's actually making it. They might they might be acts that are kind of that are kind of close to it. You know, they're using guitars in a, in a certain way, but lyrically they're they're not coming up to scratch. Or vice versa, the people that are lyrically great, but musically or melodically they're not coming up to scratch. So, we you know the, the early conversations we had about about. The, the urge to, to do our own music, one of the driving forces was there wasn't a lot of stuff around that we connected with. There was older records, you know, touchstones that, that we that, that we all agreed with, of records that had been made in the past. But the current crop at around about when we were getting together, which was the kind of mid to late, late 80s, it was, you know, there's a lot of frustration about just hearing people going up the wrong road or going going halfway up the right road and then taking a right wrong turn and so no there's not really a a community of bands that I remember fondly really or artists apart you know not not at the time when we were coming around um, but the other side of the coin is when once we started making music would the, the the notion of listening to things the time for that got really short because we were consumed with what we were doing so you weren't really out, out investigating like you know before I went near a guitar I would I would listen to the radio all the time and and read up on things and keep up with everything and once we started making music all that took a kind of back seat so once you, you go into your own little world uh, looking back looking back I, I mean yeah there's certainly artists that were around that were kind of of the same ilk I don't know if there was many UK bands but uh, those those artists around that were that were Plowing a, a furrow that I like. I like the go-betweens a lot. I thought they were a good band at the time. Another the Triffids were another Australian bunch that I liked. And, uh, but the other characters were just the bigger figures. Tom Waits and um, Dylan and people like that were, were still make, making interesting records. So you weren't actually rubbing shoulders with guys like the Lemon Drops and Echo? That's a bummer. Oh, I know Echo and the Bunnymen's music, but that was when I was a lot younger and to be honest they, you know I bought their first record when it came out and I saw them around about that time and I liked the the second record a bit and the third record and I wasn't too bored about and by the that 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 was all they were like an old band at the time that, <laughs> the time we were making music yeah and the, the other ones I don't know I don't know how they are Okay, so you guys have, you know, you get signed to a major label, you put out your first album, it is a masterpiece, in my opinion. You probably had to have been proud of it too. What was the response to that album? Did you feel like it was, you were getting the sort of attention and publicity that you deserved? Were you um, being played on the radio? Were you touring with the right bands? Were you breaking America? How were you feeling about the response to that first album, Cake? When we were, um, when the record came out, um, you know, people were playing it here. I remember going to uh, the only time you, that we would find ourselves in, in clubs or discos, as they were called at the time. You would get, they, they played a record a few times, and that that was great to watch people dancing and stuff they'd done. And we were in their studio making music, and next thing we got a call and we were getting played in the radio in California. And would you go over there? So we, you know, that was one of the one of the dreams of being in a being a musician is to go and go to the states and 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 see the, the place where a lot of your favourite music come from and movies and TV and books and stuff. So that was a, a cake opened the door to, to us to coming over there. And the first couple of tours were 
were pretty astounding. You know, there was very, very fanatical fans there that, that knew the record inside out, which totally dumbfounded us. We were quite nervous, and to be honest, we were, we were pretty ropey at recreating the record, but we got away with it with volume and, and spirit. <laughs> no, it was a... I look back on those times fondly, and that record certainly opened a lot of doors for us, and it was a... And it, from our point of view, it was, a, it was a great success. Who did you play shows with? Who were you on tour with? I think the first two, there was a band called El Cage that, that, that were our opening act. And then we played shows with Kitchens of Distinction. You know, they're really nice guys. Um, can't really remember too, too many. Mostly it was, it was our, own sh- our own shows. Yeah, we didn't do any support tours that I can recall. So I heard a story once, and this was years ago, and I don't even know if it's true, but I it, tell me if this rings a bell. So apparently, back in the day, when I've seen everything comes out, the second album, which is so good, by the way, your label, I believe, had an additional band with a really hot single at the time. And I've, I heard a story somewhere that the label or the distributor or whoever would only give this hot new single to radio stations if they agreed to play Hay Fever as well. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Does that ring a bell? Not even a distant bell, no, I don't know. I've always wondered if you were happy with that second album. Um, it sounds like to, it, it sounds like a second album in the sense that it's sort of taking what came from the first and expands on it a little bit. It's more diverse. There's different styles being played there. How did you feel about the response to the second album? Were you happy with it? I'm really happy with the with the the record. We 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 actually got a producer that that um, took a lot of the weight off our shoulders, and we he kind of with his help we formed a very kind of cohesive record. He added a lot to arrangement and uh, just making the record sound as though it was a, a piece from start to finish. We were no, really really pleased with the with the recording. It took us a, a, a few goes at recording it and uh, the writing was sometimes a bit of a struggle because uh, we'd been touring a lot so the, the writing it took a little bit of a backseat. But considering all the all the hurdles that were in front of us, I think we made a we made a, a really uh, you know, one of our one of our better records, I think, that one. Um, and I think it stands out due to the production Maybe even more than the material, I think the production makes it sound really like a, a piece, you know, a whole, a whole piece of work. When it came out, yeah, we did lots of shows and we're probably getting a bit louder at that stage. And again, it was a, we toured, we got to tour other places. We ended up in France and 
various places and it seemed to be well received. I mean, as far as as far as chapters and story goes, that was another perfect sort of follow up to the first one. It was great. So I got to ask you about the song one at a time. the only time in your entire canon where you guys just completely rock and rock in the sense of like a true rock band it gets hard and dark and heavy in that song i'm wondering why that song is such an anomaly why only the one song where you actually did that it's a it's a, a great riff and a really nice groove and to suit that we had to write a lyric which suited the kind of a uh, aggression of the, of the music and at that time in the town we were living in there were some characters that were uh, you wouldn't want to meet on a Saturday night and it was the, the we knew them quite well and, and a kind of portrait that seemed to be the, the the story of these of that of people like that seemed to marry really well with it with the music um, yeah it's, it's, it's one of the more uh, it's sore thumb songs in her in her stuff, but you know that's uh, we have got a quite a, eclectic tastes and there's a lot of music we like. So now and again, some of the more kind of louder or, or, or um, awkward stuff will come through in the songwriting. But I think it's I think it's still as melodic and and, and lyr- lyrically interesting as as everything else. So there's certain strands of it that really fit. With, with everything else we do, is it ticks a lot of, the, of our usual boxes and maybe one or two of the more unusual. Why don't you cut loose like that more often? Well, I mean, I don't, uh, we've done it over the years. Some of them end up as B-sides, some of them album tracks. Um, I don't know what cut loose really means. <laughs> um, I think it's, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, we try and reflect everything that, that we feel. You know, we try and make music that, that's just coming from our source rather than any sort of template or, 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 or you know, trying to follow any other anyone else's path. And if you do that, you know, you reflect all your moods. <clears throat> I suppose we do have, over the years, just as humans, you have aggressive moments and you have angry moments. Thankfully, the, the individuals we are, they're not very often, but, but they're there. So... When they come out in song, we crystallise them pretty well. But yeah, we're not a, we're not an angry bunch of people, so we don't write. But we, you know, we have our moments. So, as I like the way that it's all reflected in the, in the 
and the, and the, and the catalog. So I have to ask you about the lyrics. I'm not really a lyrics person, but you can't help but notice the lyrics in a Trash Can Sinatra song. Again, especially in the early days. I was curious, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of your band is the clever wordplay and these really uh, smart and funny turns of phrase. Well, we're all, we all write. No one's got, no one's got any particular claim to, to any of it. I think we all, we, we just all write songs and depending on a particular song, I can point you to whoever, whoever come up with it. But we do have a general approach of trying to be, trying to be interesting with words and try and approach things in a, uh, in a different way. Earlier on, I suppose, in the first, first records, I think we were maybe trying to please or, or, you know, the kitchen sink approach, just try and try and be as, try and be as um, funny or, or witty or smart as you can possibly be to, to impress. And, and, uh, also, you know, trying to capture emotion in some sort of way. I suppose as the years go by, you you realise you don't have to do that so much. You know, that can be kind of that can be kind of off-putting for some people, in fact. And and try and hone in more on the emotional side or the tail side, which would capture the emotion. And uh, but we, we we've always tried to be just interesting we words and good at it. We're all quite you know well-read and and we all like you know, the, the, the good stuff that's around and have always talked about that. Uh, connected well with their... Everyone appreciates a good turn of phrase and a good book and a good movie or a good a good song. So it's always been part of the thing. I don't think there's, there's maybe some things have started out just as the written thing. I can think myself of maybe one or two, but uh, for the most part, they're, 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 uh, they're always geared towards songs. Was that did do these songs ever start out as poems? With lyrics being such a focus for you guys, why not print them on the on the sleeves of the albums? I've got you know your all your CDs, but the, there's not a lyric sheet in there. No, we definitely chose for each record. We have a we have a conversation about whether we think we should and shouldn't, and it's been different over the years for different reasons. I um, I don't think there's been any overall hard and fast rule about it. Generally, we like them to be heard. You know, as part of the 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 first time you you come across the words should be when they're sung and when they're when they're on the record rather than reading them off a page because they're written written to be sung they're not written to be to be read. But another another times we felt was oh let's put them down there so people can get clarity and they can they can look at them as as a, as the on the printed page and judge them there. So it's, it just depends on on the record and the mood of how we are. All right, so we got to start. We got to talk about the third album, Happy Pocket. What happened there? Because there's a couple things going on in my book. Number one, this the album is barely distributed, only in certain parts of the world. I think Japan and the UK or something like that. It doesn't come out in the states. And this, to me, is an album where you guys start to go a lot softer, a lot quieter. What's the story of Happy Pocket? Were there label problems? Well, yeah, and, and the, the kind of business side of the show. Um, things are changing. Personnel has changed at the record company, and so we were we felt under pressure, and we felt it was the things were the atmosphere that was that we would feel from the the people that were putting out the record were was kind of changing. There was a frost kind of coming in, and uh, 
the songs were written well apart from all that, which was good. But you're right, the the release thing was problematic. I still, you know, I, th- I still think it was a, a a mistake for it not to come out in the states. That I think it would have it would have came it would have went down as well as the others, if not more. There, but you know, when people make decisions that are, you know, you, you don't even know who's making these decisions, but you certainly feel the the ripples of the of the decision. So it's it's a very difficult place to be in when you're just when things change and you you can't actually address the the people who are changing them. You just have to deal with the effects of it. But it's out of our hands and it always was. So we kind of just got on with our trade, which is the songs, and, and we went out and played them. And we did tour again quite a bit through th- in that period as well. But very proud of the record and all the singles and the B-sides. Very prolific period actually for us. There's a lot of songs. single had, had three b-sides and there was quite a few singles off it so there was there was it could have been a double double album really to be honest did the label just ignore you in the states i'm curious why you weren't getting more of a foothold here yeah i think for uh, the way it works in the states is your record company will employ a company to take a song to the radio and that will cost plenty of money and if your record company's not behind well, it didn't even put out the record so there was none of that in the states at all the, the uk was slightly different we, we did get some some success here the the cover of uh we did a cover of to south love that ended up becoming record of the week in one of the the national station Sure, a dozen feet high. 
Yeah, yeah. we kind of our profile came, came up a little bit here. There was three or four singles. The, the UK record company actually did quite a good job on that. They they stumped up money for videos, and normally we'd do two singles, and they ended up putting out four. So they were desperate for something to take off. And I think maybe if something had taken off, maybe they could have went back stateside and said, "Look, this is this is happening now." So I, I don't really. It's very difficult to blame the actual coal face people that we met, but we knew there was decisions that were going on higher up that were. You know, there was something, something in the wind where it wasn't, it wasn't so healthy for us. But musically, musically again, it was, it was musically again, it was. It's, I think it's one of our kind of uh, more exciting periods. There was just so many songs and so many different songs, and they were all rich and and sort of lyric, lyric and tone and and quite a variety show almost. We were all just just firing on, you know, firing on a. And on good form, basically. I noticed that you play a lot of those songs live, especially ones like The Safe Cracker and How Can I Apply. There's a boy up here who wants you to love him, but he can't ignore his fears. There's a girl down there who wants you to love him. band you guys yourselves must have a very high opinion of that album am i right i think so they're well loved a lot of the songs on that that record they seem to stand out somehow and um yeah people when they're when we play them a lot it's because they work you know they've got a certain thing to them a certain feel or certain whether it's optimism or 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 some other thing you know melancholy i don't know but whatever they do they kind of nail it you know so Okay, so after Happy Pocket, you guys disappear for like seven or eight years. Uh, but when you do come back with weightlifting in like 2003, you come back with a masterpiece. What were you doing during those years off and why? Well, there was a lot of uh, background stuff to do with the business that, that slowed any release down. Um, songwriting was always ongoing. We had a bit of a uh, personnel stuff uh, that we we yeah we just uh, we just jammed whenever we could basically. Once we got a bunch of songs, we, we tried to record a, a version of a of a fourth record uh, over in Hartford. I came across and did some sessions in uh, a studio in Hartford. We, we liked it, but it wasn't the greatest result. So we knew we'd have to have a second go at it. By the time we'd gotten round to getting some funding and management in place and, and a, a way of, of releasing the record, a company to put the record out both in the States and in UK and elsewhere, that ate up quite a lot of years. And uh, well, luckily, 
because it was quite a long time, by the time this actual recording of the record came about, we had a bunch of songs that we were really, we knew we knew, we knew they were top drawer. We, there, wasn't, there wasn't much filler on the record, if any, at all. It was, and that was, you know, the crystallised work of chipping away at stuff for seven years. So those things that fell by the wayside and, and things that, that, that were really shone after after a while. So we knew that we had something really really good in our hands. And we, the, the other kind of benefit of that was because it, the the limelight, for want of a better word, hadn't been on us for, for a while, when we, ha- when we re- eventually did bring out a record, the people were interested in it because there'd been such a gap. So there was a nice reception for the certainly for the UK press and 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 radio to an extent that could always be better. But there was a nice sort of uh, embracing of our stuff and probably maybe even more so than any other record we put out. We got a, we got a good reception and we got a, a nice bit of coverage and and to this day it's 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 a it's a powerful record for a lot of people. How did you guys, so we talk about the money side of the business in here a little bit, as sensitively as we can. How did you guys support yourselves during those lean times? Things got lean, but the kind of era most of us grew up in, um, we, we're all from the west coast of Scotland, and, and we all kind of, well, myself and Frank, and we left school round about the kind of early early 80s, late 70s, early 80s kind of period and Paul and Stephen slightly later but we all come from this coastal town which is away from the major cities uh, at a couple of industries during the 70s but as as things turned into the 80s and the, the kind of more right wing government started to kick in uh, the work sort of disappeared so we, we left school and there wasn't anything in the area to do, basically. At that at that point, there was quite a decent welfare system, where you could you could do, you know, you could you could sign on the welfare system and you'd get basic, very basic money, and we'd be living at home and such. We did I did move around and lived in Edinburgh for a while and and stuff. But the welfare system at that point meant you could do that. You could get your your, your rent covered. But it was very frugal times, you know. You would be you'd be buying the the, the kind of if you're if you're going for buying food you would buy the, the basic stuff and you know but when you're young 18 19 whatever it is that's not that doesn't matter so much you know you've got a social life and you're out there with friends and you're <clears throat> you know it helped it helped hone us as a band and as musicians that period because there was so much time in our hands but very very used to very very used to living hand to mouth not having you know the grand money to to, to swan around with so very used very used to being a musician in lean times you know from well before any any making records was coming around so when we went through a period of uh, of not touring and, and not making records making records actually didn't make us a lot of money touring covered its costs but we'd have we'd have to be able to pay the rent and stuff but when things things got tough uh, yeah we, your, your mind just went back to the the way it used to be and and, and you got through and were, worked on songs um, and just lived lived in that kind of frugal frugal life because we still you know you, you we would go and do part-time jobs or get money from here and there but there was always a, a, a kind of a 
uh, that we were still doing our job as a band in our in our imagination we were still a band and we're, we're working on a way to make a record whether it's through thick or thin you know that's that's what we were doing we're still focused on it we're still rehearsing still sitting in rooms at night and passing thoughts and passing pieces of paper and cassettes and getting frustrated with it and then finding finding diamonds and finding finding real real great stuff and when the great stuff arrives it keeps you going for for years you know if you know you've got a good song in your pocket and your your pals are all buzzing with it and you're in the rehearsal room and you're 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 working it up into something that sounds undeniable then you you know that that keeps you going through the through the hard times there was yeah it was there's a few years that that were tough but as i said you know when we were, when we were young it was tough anyway you know living under right-wing governments and and uh, the times are tough so we'd all experienced it so it was nothing new did you ever have to make a living outside of music no we never never had a trade as such no as i said when i left school there was no real opportunities for that the trade the trades of our fathers were, were gone were shut down and and uh, moved, moved, moved away to where they could be done cheaper Okay, so now we come up to the fifth album, In the Music, another lush, beautiful album, um, still sort of on the softer side, but um, amazing nonetheless. I got to know, how did you get Carly Simon to sing on your song, um, Should I Pray? Does Carly Simon even know who the Trash Can Sinatras are? Mixing the record up in Martha's Vineyard, the producer Andy Chase had a house up there, and we recorded the album in New York, and then did a lot of vocals up in uh, Martha's Vineyard. And he, his family knew the Carly's family, and uh, we just sent a cassette. And I heard No Secrets Records, a big favourite of mine. And there's a song on it called um, "The Last Time I Saw Robin," I think it's called. That I've, I loved, and I wrote a letter, a letter explaining how you know she, her songs mean a lot to me, and 
And we left, and next thing Andy said that she'd got in touch. She, she really liked the song, Should I Pray It? And uh, she wanted to, to add her, her vocal to it. So we weren't around when it happened. But uh, it's just one of those miraculous, magical things that occur. There's plenty of them that happened, happened throughout her career. That's the first kind of recorded one. But there's little joyous things you find as you know, the things, records you like and musicians you like when you were younger. As you go through your career, you find them coming up to you and shaking your hand and saying hello. And uh, that was a big one, her, her singing on the record. And how'd you guys get connected up with Andy Chase? Uh, he was in the band Ivy, for people who don't know. Ivy is an amazing band, and he's really probably the perfect guy for you. I'm curious how you how that relationship started. We just sent him some tracks. I can't remember who recommended them. Uh, I don't remember how that came about, but he mixed a few tracks that we were having trouble with mixing from the, from the weightlifting record. Anyway, he mixed something that we, that we really liked. And then... When, once he'd we'd, we'd got faith in his mixing abilities, I'm pretty sure this was when the when the weightlifting record was about. And then we said, "Let's when we're doing the next record, we'll do it with you." And by that point, when we were doing that record, we were a pretty good uh, unit playing the songs. So we just showed up and he set up the microphones and said, "Okay, he'll play what you got." And we, we, a lot of the songs were just played as a band. There wasn't any kind of big, let's get the drums down, let's get the bass down, let's do the guitars, which is a kind of usual way of doing things. Or so it was nice for us to play a kind of live record. And that's that's what in the music was basically that, just us playing in the studio and having getting a good take, and that that would be it. Maybe add some harmonies. But uh, I don't think I knew much of Ivy's material, but I knew he was a very competent uh, engineer and producer. He had a his engineer, uh, Rudyard, I think his name was a lovely fellow as well. Just very, very, very um, competent at what they did. And they were making records that were coming out and getting good receptions. And a kind of current thing, you know, it's one of the things that comes into your head when you're choosing someone to work with is, are they making records that are current? You know, or, or what, what did they do last and did it? how did it do? You want to be making things that are, you've got a shot at, at getting played around in the radio and that. You know, the producers can have a, a year for that sort of stuff. Now, a couple of years ago, you had a little bit of a health scare, am I right? Are you okay? What's happening there? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I went through some issues. Uh, just, I um, don't really know how much I want to go on about that. But yeah, I'm okay. Now, I got to ask, I hope this isn't too insensitive. You're married to Eddie Reader, who is not only Frank's sister, but a very accomplished singer in her own right with Fairport Convention. It's a little interesting, probably being married to your bandmate's sister. Uh, how long have you guys been married? Uh, seven, seven years. Oh, we've gone up, we've been together for 17. Oh, you know how these things happen. Now, let's go up to the present day. Wild Pendulum is so upbeat. Um, I mean, All Night is practically a dance song. What, again, made you decide to sort of go that route this time? Well, I wouldn't say we're a dance group, no, but yeah, certainly we, uh, I mean, as as I mentioned before, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a big, you know, some fantastic records that were were kind of wrapped around the dance floor uh, that are big, big touchstones for our stuff. They had the BG stuff and ABBA and, you know, just super melodic, but 
they've got a kind of a, they're, they're at their best, you know, on, in a in a dance on a dance floor. And uh, I suppose that was a when ideas come, you just follow the ideas. You got no say no matter whatsoever. You know, the, 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 there's an idea comes and and it's got its own terrain that it, it tells you where where it is and what it's about, and you just have to honour it and try and keep stick with it and and get it to sculpt to get it to be true to itself and 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 sometimes they're songs like one at a time where it's a you know a kind of portrait of violence and sometimes they're, they're like all night which is a harking back to the, the dance records of your your youth and, and remembering the, the the kind of joy that they that they had and trying and uh, the melodies the melodies of them and the kind of the, the, the lyrical thought processes songs back then the same sort of themes of you know how if you're having a hard time and you're having a you're going through something you know that having a having a, a dance and getting lost and lost in a song in the company of others can be a very therapeutic thing i'm sure i'm sure barry white has said it you know <laughs> and, 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 and you know in better ways but you know that was it was you know it's not it's it's a road that's been traveled before and we just we just had a, a song and an idea that was going up that road and we, we just had to, to go with it. When you make these stylistic changes, is there a certain band member that's kind of pushing one way or the other? Um, does any one member have a louder voice? I don't know how the songwriting's distributed between, you know, the sound and the lyrics and whatever, but um, how do you come to these decisions? The, the democracy thing is there is dealt with right at the beginning of the band you know you you come together because you got the same um, thoughts and the same tastes and the same sort of approach to music so that's that's why you know that's when you you want to stay in the same room as people when those things are in place and they've lasted a long time with us you know we've been together a good many years and uh, we all know the kind of terrain that we're on you know and I uh, we all know the, the the vast expanse of music that we like and appreciate, and there's some that I like and others don't, and vice versa. But the the things that we come up with, they are generally everyone everyone gets what it is and and is appreciative of it. We're all fans of each other, basically. I think if we were, you know, 
if we were to choose who would like to be in a band with, we'd probably choose the same, the, the people that we've got just now, you know, because we've got the same approach. And, and the, if those debates came up, if suddenly there was a point where it was like, nah, I don't really get this idea. Again, I can understand, you know, then we probably wouldn't be making records together. But we do, we do get them, you know, we do kind of connect on that thing. That's the chemistry of any band that, that, that's worth, you know, worth assault as, as they, they acknowledge their chemistry and they, they go with it, you know. Okay, so let's discuss this current tour, the acoustic tour. Um, everything I've seen about it says that you're going to be playing all 100 of your songs. Explain that. What are you guys doing? I think there's 30 shows in total, maybe 29 or something like that. And what we'll do is we'll have a, a kind of basic pool. Of, we're not having any support act for a start. We're playing for a good few hours at least. You know, we're just we're doing two sets and it'll probably be between two and two and a half hours each night um, with, a, with an interval for you know, for a break. And uh, so there's plenty of time for us to do lots of songs. Uh, because it's the acoustic format and it's just the three of us, we can call on anything from our catalogue. And, you know, we don't have to have a bass player that knows all the songs or anything. It's quite, you know, we're having to work. We're At the moment, we're, we're, we're going through scraping the rust off some of the songs and making sure that we're all, the same page and they're all in the right key for, for us nowadays so there's a bit of background work going on just now but the actual on the night it'll probably be there'll be probably an hour and a half worth of stuff that, that, that will definitely be playing every night and then another 45 minutes that will be fluid so over the period of those 30 shows we should be able to play you know everything that we've ever ever done some of them I would imagine we'll do once and that'll be it you know, and, and uh, we're recording them. I've maybe a thought of at some point having a a souvenir of I don't know whether it'd be a CD or a download or a DVD or something of just all the hundred songs in that in that acoustic format. We're going to multi-track the shows and see what that leads to. But yeah, this I just feels a good way to. This feels like a kind of a crossroads where we're going to just look back at everything. So we might end up playing a few new things as well, but just see where we are and see how we, see how we feel with each other and and see how we feel with the songs. So for myself, going through this little period of working them up and rehearsing them, some of them I haven't played since we recorded them. It's they're they're good. I'm I'm quite surprised at the at the. Um, much I'm, I'm enjoying it. There were songs I was kind of dreading, but then I went back and I started. Yeah, just because they're they're so long ago and I haven't played them for such a long time and kind of forgotten what their charms were. But uh, they're, 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 yeah, they're, I've been pleasantly surprised. Any songs you're particularly excited to play? Uh, some of the kind of B-side stuff uh, that I didn't I didn't know what they would be like. Um, you think? There was a song called uh, Kangaroo Court on the LBC.
some of the kind of later on B-sides. Song called uh, I'm the One Who Fainted, that I really like. One of Davies' tunes. You guys have been loyal to each other for almost 30 years now, but does, do you guys ever work on other projects outside of the band? Yeah, there's been other things. There's been other things. Uh, Frank did some guest vocals with uh, our friend Simon on a, I can't remember the names of the, what was the, Adventures in Stereo was the name of the act. I did some guest vocals there. I've written songs with uh, my wife and she's she's did songs that, I, that I've written that haven't you know, that have just been on her records um, I've, I've, I've written songs for an Irish band called the Alan Kelly Gang he's a traditional musician from Galway that uh, plays the, the box accordion and he's got a, a sort of four-piece traditional bands and, and I've written some songs that they, they've done and done a tour with them as well. I'm going out on a few dates with them in four or five days' time. I'm going to do an Irish tour. Um, I've got a sort of Irish background of traditional musicians and uh, so I've got a little bit of that in my blood. I'm trying to think of Paul's. Paul's played guitar with a few bands, a few LA bands. Um, Stephen's played drums and a few things uh, we did do a record just me, Paul and Stephen were the backing band for a, a Glasgow musician called Peter Rose he, did, he brought out a record under the name the band's name was Austell Bay O-S-T-L-E and then Bay B-A-Y and it was basically he had a, he had a bunch of lyrics and a he would come to us and he would say, have you got a riff or you got a thing? And we would play something and go, right, that's it. And we did 12 tracks with him that came out in an album. So there's been various, various kind of side things. I, I played, yeah, there's a band called Heirloom for Ayrshire that I played keyboards with for, for on a single. And there's been little things here and there, yeah. Okay, I always cut, end these with two of the, two of the same questions. First of all, I want to know if you have any regrets if there's any decisions you guys made along the way that kind of negatively impacted the band that you wish you hadn't made and then i also just want to know what your tastiest memories are what are those what are what are those stories that are swirling around in your mind that you just can't believe are there or that happened to you no i don't have any major regrets um nothing nothing that i would change as such um i don't really think that way to be honest things what was the second bit things i'm proud of oh it's been lovely moments 
remember being at Tea in the Park, which is a festival in Scotland, maybe, well, it must have been 20 years ago or something at least. And we were, me and Paul were standing in the tent, blithering away, and, and this fella comes up to Paul and he said, you're, you're Paul from the trash cans, aren't you? And Paul said, yeah, name's gone, okay, right. What time are you on it? I know you're over in that stage. Paul was like, we're on at eight or something. So like, great, okay, I'll come around and check you out. And it was Joe Strummer. And uh, what else had? Paul Weller was a big fan of our Safe Cracker song. So they're, they're kind of nice moments for me because when I was a kid, certainly both of those guys were very inspirational in, in myself becoming what I became. So that was they, they're lovely little circles that, that that happen in life. You know, they're not yeah, very very chuffed with that as well as the songs. I and mean, I could go on forever about the songs, but it's for something they were they were little magical moments. Well. John, I couldn't love you more. The Trashcan Sinatras are one of the greatest bands ever. I love you guys so much. You've brought so much joy to my life. And so thank you for being you and for all the goodness you've put out in this world. Ah, thank you. Pleasure, John. There you have it, John Douglas. Now I gotta say, so last week I did see them in concert on this tour that I was so skeptical about, and it was beautiful. And it was actually livelier than some of the last couple of times that I've seen them. But I want to read something to you. I hadn't read this when I recorded the interview a month and a half ago or whatever it was. But on the their bio on the webpage to the venue that I saw them in concert read this. And this is a few years old. Got together, got drunk, tried to make a decent sound, got a record deal, obsessively made cake, toured with a bad attitude, came to some conclusions, confidently made I've seen everything, toured with a better attitude, wondered how to make another album, desperately made a happy pocket, went bust, worried, got drunk, got angry, got over it, cautiously made weightlifting, toured in a great mood, happily made in the music. Doesn't that sound really interesting? I feel like that didn't really come across in this interview. I wonder why. I wonder if John's maybe just, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't like to tell his story or maybe he's, uh, you know, not prone to sort of talking about himself. It's a shame because I think there's a really interesting, compelling story in there and I don't think we got it. Maybe that's my fault. Maybe I asked the wrong questions. 
Anyway, this song you're listening to right here, this is the title track off that weightlifting album. It's just, it's mind-blowingly beautiful. I love this song so much. It's one of those actually sentimental songs for my wife and I. It's the best. And if you haven't had a chance, I hope you'll get to see them live at some point because they're amazing. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich for putting everything together. Uh, you know the business by now. You can like our Facebook page. You can stay in communication with me that way. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Next week's guest is a founding member of probably the biggest band we have ever featured on the show. He is no longer in that band. Uh, that's all I'm going to tell you. So anyway... Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you all next week.